having more data allows us to better understand and better estimate what such an event might look like uh, today, enable people to plan better uh, for the future. This is Data Points, a podcast from Berkeley Earth. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Data Points podcast. April marks Earth Month in the U.S., and in celebration of Earth Day 2022, we are thrilled today to welcome Professor Ed Hawkins, climate scientist and creator of the famous Climate Stripes visualization. Professor Hawkins' climate stripes have been featured in countless publications, shown on runways in couture collections, and his climate spiral visualization was even featured in the opening ceremony of the 2016 Rio Olympics. His creative approach to visualizing climate data, including Berkeley Earth's temperature data, has contributed immensely to making climate science accessible and changing the way people interact with climate data. We are so honored to have him with us today, along with Berkeley Earth lead scientist Dr. Robert Rohde, to discuss the important role that historical climate data plays in responding to climate change. So let's get into the episode. So welcome, Ed and Robert. Thank you so much for joining us and being with us today. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself. Thank you. It's great to be here. So my name is Professor Ed Hawkins. I work at the National Centre for Atmospheric Science uh, at the University of Reading in the UK. Uh, and I study how the climate has already changed in the past and how it might change in the near future. And Robert, we know you pretty well around here, but if you want to go ahead and give a little introduction to your work and your background. Uh, yeah. I'm Dr. Robert Rohde. I'm lead scientist for Berkeley Earth. So I do a lot of work reconstructing past climate change and looking at other other aspects of the Earth system. Uh, and particularly, you know, I do a lot of work reconstructing temperatures, which we're going to hear a, a, a bit more about from Ed, which I, you know, I love his work. You know, Ed is actually one of my climate science heroes. So I'm very happy to have you here today. It's wonderful. to be here then, thank you. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. So let's jump right into that. Um, most of our listeners, again, are probably familiar with uh, Ed's famous climate stripes. Um, Ed, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the origin of the climate stripes and maybe what the original purpose and context was? Yeah, so I, I was um, asked to go to a, a literature festival uh, to talk about climate change in, in a partnership with, a, with an author and a poet uh, called Nicola Davies, who wrote some beautiful poetry uh, about climate change. Um, and I was there um, to talk a bit about the science to an audience who uh, are, are there to learn about uh, literature. Uh, and so my feeling was that that audience would not necessarily um, uh, want to see traditional scientific graphics to, to communicate that the key messages we wanted to get across. Uh, and so I had the idea of simply using colors uh, to communicate the fact that the, the climate is changing uh, and particularly the temperature is changing. And, and so I, I created this graphic, which was just a series of colored stripes, colored blue and red, depending on the temperature uh, um, uh, in that particular year. So one stripe per year colored by the temperature in that year. And I chose to do it initially for the town of Hay, which is where the Literature Festival was, the Hay Literature Festival, which is very famous here in the UK. Um, and even on a small town like Hay, you can see the colours of the stripes for every year change from mainly blues in the past, which will represent the colder years, 
uh, to reds more recently, which are the warmer years. So even at the scale of a, a village such as that, you can see that the climate is changing just visually by one glance at this image. And as soon as I put it up on the screen for this audience, I could see that the, the pennies drop um, uh, in, in people's eyes, that they recognized um, what was going on. Just by one glance at an image, you can tell that the world is warming and the, the town of Hay uh, is warming as well. That's such a great story. And it it really hits on a big piece of the work that's done uh, by climate science and the climate science community, which is science communications. And how do we translate all of this incredible work, which can sometimes be exceedingly technical? How do you translate that into a format that's not just understood, but received in kind of a more um, uh, effective way, I suppose, to really help people grasp uh, the importance of it, but also kind of commit them to action as well. Um, but there's thousands of graphs and charts and visualizations of climate data out there. Why do you think that these stripes were, that, that, that this particular format of presenting the data was received differently? Yeah, I think people just um, take in information in different ways. Um, and climate mm -hmm. change affects everybody mm -hmm. everywhere. And we are asking everybody to make changes to how they live their lives going forward if we are to tackle this problem uh, and so first of all we need to communicate that uh, climate change is affecting them uh, and so using the stripes for the town of hay at a local scale um, makes people realize that actually things are changing where they live uh, in their local area and i think that's one important part to communicate um, but it's also important to recognize that not everyone can interpret a traditional scientific graphic and we need a wide range of graphics to reach different groups of people. So, yes, there are you know, many people out there who can look at a line graph or a, or a schematic or uh, any other way that we complex way we have of communicating uh, climate data and interpret it really effectively and take away the key messages. But many people cannot. And so we need a whole range. Uh, and the stripes are one end of that range, simply using colors. There's no, no numbers, no, no mm. axes, no, no graphs. It's just you purely using color to communicate the message. And of course, for temperature, we have a very clear social uh, picture that blue is cold and red is hot. And so that naturally allows us just to use different shades of those two colors to communicate the key message that things have changed from cold to hot. Uh, especially recently and especially rapidly recently. It's also very nice that this simple representation can then be picked up in a whole host of different formats. You know, people putting it on buildings, in shower stalls, in, you know, the sides of their cars. It's, it, it's, so it's pretty, but also something that's versatile. I, I love it. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's what surprised me, actually, when when people started using it in these these novel ways. And you mentioned the car there. And I think that was one of the first um, uh, ways that these graphics were used in a way I wasn't expecting. So I had a message from um, a chap in Minnesota uh, in the US soon after I published the, the, the global version of the graphic, which is, is perhaps the most recognizable. Um, and he had used the stripes to to wrap his car to paint his car in in the stripes and it was a tesla uh, electric car um and he said he took this car to a car show uh where um the you would you would essentially assume that the audience in their car show were not 
normally used to speaking about climate change and, and recognizing the risks that we face. Um, and he said he had more conversations about climate change in that one afternoon he spent at the car show than he'd had in the rest of his entire life put together. And it's because, purely because people came up to him and said, what have you done to your car? Why is it painted in these ridiculous colors? Um, mm -hmm. And because they had started the conversation, come up to him and asked him the question, he was then able to give them the answer and they would, they would have to receive the information about, about climate change. You know, if they'd known it was about climate change, they may not have approached him, but because they asked the question, it instantly started the conversation and therefore it was more effective. Uh, it's almost like the simplicity of it makes it incredibly accessible and approachable, um, perhaps in a way that more complex data is not. Um, but on that topic, let's get into the data. So how are these climate stripes made? Let's talk a little bit about the kind of technicality of it. Uh, what kind of data is used to create these climate stripes? Um, so it's it's normally a, a annual average temperature for okay. a particular location. So um, we have very good long records of temperature um, across the planet, um, and we have global average temperatures back to around about 1850 or so. And so the most recognizable graphic is simply the global average temperature, um, 172 stripes representing one per year from 1850 up to 2021. Um, colored by the global average temperature uh, in that year. Um, and then, so that, that's one aspect of it, the changing global temperature. But we also, again, have to communicate the fact that climate change is changing locally. It matters to people, to everybody. Um, and so uh, we are able to extend this concept and produce graphics for every country. And the reason we were able to do that is because of Robert's work with Berkeley Earth, um, produce uh, uh, annual average temperatures for every country. And so Robert was able to pass me the data uh, that Berkeley Earth produce. And so I could produce the same graphics for every single country around the world. Uh, and they're all on a website, showyourstripes.info, where anyone can go along, see how the climate is changing, where they live in their own country, and use it to start conversations uh, about the changing climate. We're very happy to have contributed to that effort and you know, getting the data uh, in front of people in a localized way, I think is very important and useful. Yeah, we're extremely appreciative that you know, you're able to provide that data to us to, to enable that to happen because it, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is that local scale information, which is so important. So speaking a little bit more about uh, the data and uh, hopefully more local data as well, uh, you've been leading a global effort to help quote unquote rescue climate data. Uh, tell us a little bit about this project. Yeah, so um, you know, although we have all of these long records um, of, of changes in our climate and temperature and rainfall and pressure and sea level um, going back decades and in some cases centuries, um, what we have available to us digitally does not represent everything that, was, that has been measured um, over the past two, three, four centuries uh, or, or more. And a lot of that old observations, those old observations are actually still only available on paper in various archives around the world. There's almost certainly more than a billion observations um, stored up on paper in various archives, um, uh, probably just in Europe, actually, not counting for anywhere else in the world. Um, and so transforming that information from paper to digital so that scientists can analyze it and use it to improve our understanding of how things have changed in the past um, is, a, is a key um, aspect of what we need to do, I think. We need to understand how things have changed already, 
especially around extreme events, to learn about the context for, for our changing climate, um, to understand the variations in the past, uh, enable us to think about risks in the current climate and in the future. And so rescuing this data from the paper and making it useful to science once again um, is, is, a, is, is a key part of what I'm doing at the moment. I want to talk a little bit about uh, in the context of understanding extreme uh, weather events. Why does having this additional data, how does having, uh, you know, additional precipitation data, ocean temperature data, how does that contribute to scientists' understanding of these extreme events? And why is that understanding so important? So for many extremes, you know, what we've seen recently is broken or, or records. But that's not always the case. You know, for example, here in the UK, our wettest month ever on record is October 1903. It happened a very long time ago still. And so understanding the reasons why past um, uh, months or years or days were so unusual is really important if we're to understand um, the risks from a similar event happening again. If, if that month happened um, again, if the weather patterns that caused so much rain to fall uh, in that month uh, happened again today, we'd probably get more rain from the storms that brought uh, all of that rain. And so we'd get more rainfall falling, potentially more flooding, um, and especially as there's more infrastructure in harm's way than there was 120 years ago, mm. um, that would be great, give greater risks um, to, to people and to infrastructure and to ecosystems. And so understanding these very extreme events of the past um, is important for understanding risk today. I would just add that uh, when people are worried about weather events, they're often worried about things like the, the hundred year flood which is you know, a notional flood that happens once every hundred years, but without long weather records of precipitation and you know, weather events, we have a hard time understanding even what a hundred year flood means. Uh, so we need these histories to tell us, you know, at least as a starting point, what was possible in the past. And then that helps us inform uh, and build a better understanding of what's maybe happening in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, so in the UK, our, our planning, um, uh, the government guidelines are that, that any new infrastructure has to be built with a one in a hundred year flood in mind. Um, uh, and our water companies have to try and plan for a one in 500 year drought. Um, mm -hmm. um, you know, given those long timescales, having more data allows us to better understand and better estimate what such an event might look like uh, today, enable people to plan better uh, for the future. Yeah, definitely. And then translating that into actual legislation that has financial commitments behind it um, seems like it's increasingly uh, important to understand. Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I was just going to, you know, also, I mean, we're, we're often used to talking about temperature and rainfall, um, mm. but I also think, you know, that the, the actually atmospheric pressure is becoming a very useful variable, and that hasn't really been discussed so much in the past. Um, because pressure is what drives the atmospheric circulation. It, you know, it, it's, it's the feature that we can measure, which allows us to, to tell what's happening with the, with the circulation in the atmosphere, and therefore where the rain uh, is going to fall and where the heat might be. Uh, and so recovering pressure observations, which we can now combine uh, with modern weather forecast models, allows us to build up a very detailed picture of how the atmosphere was behaving even 100 years ago or more. Um, and so we can actually now take these very extreme events of the past, 
from the pressure data that we can recover, combined with our modern weather models to produce what's called a reanalysis, we can actually provide a very detailed map, a very 3D picture of what happened 100 years ago or more that caused that extreme weather. And so that, that is immensely useful to those planning for, for the changes uh, and, the, and understanding whether we, we are resilient to these types of events today. There's one aspect of your weather rescue that we haven't really discussed, but which I think is really interesting, which is that you're doing a lot of this using you know, so-called citizen science. You're having volunteers with no particular scientific training helping you to do this transcribing of this data. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, so absolutely. I mean, this is, this is essentially transforming images of handwritten um, numbers on pieces of paper into digital data. Uh, and unfortunately, the modern you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning techniques are not quite there yet to enable that to happen automatically, to read old handwriting in tabulated numerical tables. Um, and so we have to do it manually using people. Uh, and because the task is so large, we have millions, hundreds of millions of these records. The only way we can do this is by recruiting um, a lot of volunteers to help us. But because it is just reading numbers, as you say, it can be done by, by anyone who, who can read handwriting. Um, and so we, we use a, um, a web infrastructure called the Zooniverse, which is specifically designed um, uh, to enable anyone to build these projects, to ask volunteers to help with their scientific uh, projects that, they, that, that anyone can help with. And so we've used that platform to put these images of, of these old weather records online and ask people to come and help us transcribe those records. Um, and so, for example, at the start of the, the pandemic lockdown here in the UK in March 2020, we launched a project called Rainfall Rescue. And we had 60,000 pieces of paper which had been scanned uh, and we uploaded those images onto, onto the Rainfall Rescue website uh, and asked for people to come and help us transcribe those monthly rainfall observations, about 5 million numbers recorded on 66,000 pieces of paper. Um, uh, and amazingly, we had 16,000 volunteers step forward um, and they managed to transcribe all 5 million numbers um, uh, in just 16 days which is far faster than anyone could do it alone. It's probably several person years of effort to do all of that transcription. And we're able to do it in, in 16 days. Um, and so it allows us to speed up the process of re rescuing this data. And people enjoy it. They, they, they recognize that it's valuable. Uh, it, it gives many people something that they feel is very useful to do. Uh, it gives them purpose. Um, and, and so you, you see that the, the chat forums that, that we have on the project discussing how useful people think it is and how it's helped them um, uh, give them give purpose to their lives by, by doing projects such as this to feel like they're contributing and doing something useful for society. Yeah, it's so remarkable how fast you were able to recruit volunteers and do some of this transcription. It's, it really seemed like you probably spent far longer preparing the scans and getting, getting every Open, ready to transcribe that you actually needed the volunteers to do the transcription. Uh, that's probably true in the end. Yeah. I mean, it, it probably it took several months to scan all the documents. Um, uh, and then, yeah, they're online for 16 days. Um, but that wasn't the end of the process. Um, once you have all of the raw transcriptions, um, you then have to do all of the quality control work on the data to ensure it's robust. 
Um, and actually with, with the rainfall records, one key aspect was trying to identify exactly where the rain gauge was in the country. Often we had um, um, a grid reference or a name of the observer or a location with various amounts of detail, um, often directions to nearby landmarks. And so actually it was actually a bit of a detective work um, to work out, to try and piece together the piece of information we had to work out where exactly the rain gauge was um, uh, in the country so that we could essentially place it uh, on a map uh, and enable data to be used to reconstruct variations in rainfall. And actually sort of eight of the volunteers that had started the project with us actually have, have stayed with the project for the, for the last two years or more um, and have been doing a lot of that detective work and, and checking of the data to enable it to be published uh, and, and used in, in our reconstructions. And so without their efforts, the 16,000 initial volunteers and the eight volunteers who have stayed with the project for the last two years, um, this just would not have been possible. Are there still efforts underway that if people listening want to get involved, they can go ahead and jump in? Absolutely. Um, we, we currently have a project called weatherrescue.org, uh, which is running at the moment. Uh, and this is focusing on ship logs uh, instead. So we're, we're moved from the land uh, records out into the ocean. Um, we, we would like to improve our understanding of variations across the planet. Um, and, and that means that often we have to, to, to look at ship data. Uh, and there are, again, hundreds, if not thousands of ship log books um, from, from the early part of our, our records, which have not yet been transcribed. And so our, our current project is focused on the 1860s, the decade of the 1860s, because there are quite a lot of gaps in our, our records of temperature over the ocean in that particular decade. And so we've chosen that decade as a, as a prime target to improve our understanding. And so um, we've already completed the transcription of about 100 ship log books from the 1860s. There's another 100 online, uh, which people are, are already helping with. And so anyone else who wants to get involved, just go to weatherrescue.org um, and, and give us a hand. So speaking of gaps in data and temperature data, specifically ocean temperature data, uh, you know, I think we kind of take for granted that our modern instrumentation allows us to capture this data, this meteorological data, temperature, atmospheric pressure. Uh, we're able to capture these things relatively easy, easily, uh, but compiling a historic temperature record does require some finesse. So I'm hoping, Robert, perhaps you could go into a little bit of detail about how these various uh, data points, these, these ship log temperatures and all of this data that's being transcribed from these paper records, what is the process involved in creating a quote-unquote temperature record from all these different pieces of data? Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of work that goes into building a temperature analysis around these original temperature measurements, you know, what Ed will get out of his log books uh, and, you know, from weather stations and things and making sure it's reliable and robust when we process it into you know, a so-called global temperature uh, field. Uh, often, you, know, you, you know, have several places you need to start. One, you want to see that the you know, individual recorded measurements are reliable, uh, often by checking them against other observations in a similar geographic location. So, you know, it may be on land, it may be you know, a town or two over in the oceans that you're looking for ships that happen to be in the same area at a similar time. 
but you also have to check uh, the types of, inf of infrastructure that's used. Uh, there's been changes in the way we've measured temperature over time. Uh, this is particularly true in the oceans, where you know you go back to the 1860s, like Ed is talking about, and what you probably had was some guy on the deck of a wooden ship hauling up a wooden bucket and sticking a thermometer in it to measure the temperature of the ocean water. Uh, you know, sometimes there's little variations. There's canvas buckets, there's metal buckets, but you know, it was really, we're going to sample this with a bucket back in the day. Uh, nowadays, most of the measurements are coming from floating buoys uh, or from ocean-going ships that have water intakes that are used to cool their engines. Uh, so it's slightly different technology. And because it's sampling in slightly different ways, you get you know, small fractions of a degree differences between what's done today and what's you know, done in the past. So we have to be on the lookout for the changes in technology. We have to understand how those biases affected past measurements and you know, how they will affect things going forward. Uh, and we also have a lot of times particularly in the oceans, but also on land where there are gaps. Uh, you know, there's no data in this part of Africa. There's no data in this part of the Pacific. And, you know, we have, we can do some degrees of interpolation and extrapolation, but you can only carry that so far before you just have no information at all. So it's one of the reasons why weather rescue efforts are very useful for filling in these holes and letting us have a more complete picture of what was going on in the past. So let's say we fill in those holes. We have this amazing volunteer effort, 16,000 volunteers, you know, transcribing 60,000 plus pieces of, of data, uh, pieces of paper, translating that data digitally. When we talk about getting a more complete picture, what does that look like both from, from a climate scientist perspective in terms of, of really understanding that data and being able to use that data to create new research, but also what does that mean kind of for the bigger picture of global warming? Uh, so there are you know, a couple different ways this is important. Uh, you know, filling in the holes gives us better understandings of what's happening locally, obviously. So for example, having a longer record in parts of Africa or parts of the ocean does give us that context to help say, you know, what is, for example, a hundred year event and understand that better. Uh, we also have places like, uh, for example, there was a very large El Nino event in the 1870s. Uh, and that's probably being overstated in some of our temperature records right now because we don't have a very good record of the ocean in the 1870s. I think we are overstating it a bit from what we do have. Uh, extrapolate a little bit too much from the hot parts of the ocean. So we use some of these things will help, you know, nail down the variability, nail down the local features, help us understand the, you know, the hundred year events. Uh, also, the right now, some of the understanding the long-term history, you know, how much has the ocean warmed? How much has the land warmed? The you know, we right now we estimate it, Berkeley Earth estimates it at about 1.3 degrees C since the late 19th century. But the, there's some uncertainty there. And a lot of that uncertainty originates 
in the early part of the record, the part that has gaps in space and has changes in technology. And anytime we can fill in some of those holes, it gives us the potential to reduce some of that uncertainty and have a better, uh, a more precise number of how much warming has happened in the past. I fully with, with what Robert um, has just described. And another project that I'm um, a, a part of is actually trying to go further back in time. Mm. So many of our records currently start in 1850, our, our global temperature records. Um, but we, you know, we, we do have records that, that go before 1850, particularly over the land. Um, uh, and there is now a push to try and go further back in time before 1850. Um, and so um, we are currently trying to use um, uh, measurements of air temperature over land uh, and actually air temperatures over the ocean to push back that starting point of our global temperature history back towards the 1780s. Um, and that's probably as far as we can go. And we, it won't be um, a very complete picture uh, back that far, but we're going to try and put together everything we can find um, uh, to try and push back that start date to the 1780s. Um, and because we're using air temperature over the ocean rather than the water temperature, we, we can do that because the air temperatures were measured earlier in time than the, than the seawater temperatures. And, and so that allows us to push that record back in time. And that puts us in a very interesting period in our climate history, because that period before 1850 um, and, and after 1780, there were actually a lot of uh, very large volcanic eruptions um, in that period. Um, there's the eruption of Larkey in the 1780s, and then Tambora, and then more eruptions in the 1830s, and another one in 1808, which we don't exactly know where it happened. Um, but a lot of those eruptions are bigger than anything we've seen more recently. And so understanding what we can about how the climate responded to those very, very large eruptions in the past will also tell us a little bit about how, how the climate might respond if a similar eruption occurs in the future, which it will at some point. We can't predict when it will happen, but it's, it, it will happen at some point in the future. And so knowing more about that natural influence on our climate by looking further back in time is also going to be really important. And I would just add, it's not just the natural influence of the volcanoes that's uh, useful to constrain. If you get a better understanding of the climate changes in response to those volcanoes, you potentially also help constrain the sensitivity of the climate to aerosols of the kinds that humans are emitting by industrial activity. You know, the, the little sulfate aerosols that sometimes come with our fossil fuels tend to have a cooling effect. And the, the magnitude of that effect is you know, an uncertainty in our understanding of global warming. So if we can do that with a little bit of old volcano and climate data, that'd be even better. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So there's been a lot of focus recently on solutions to climate change, very positive solutions to climate change. And we're seeing a lot of efforts really start to materialize and especially funding start to materialize for large scale uh, solutions to climate change, such as carbon capture, carbon sequestration, we're seeing moves away from fossil fuels towards renewables. It seems like there's a lot of mo momentum and movement right now towards the solution side. How does constraining this uncertainty, how does crafting a higher resolution picture of these temperatures and of climate change, how does this help contribute to 
finding solutions to climate change? Why do we still need this data? Why do we still need this improved understanding? So the higher resolution, the more complete, the better understanding of the past, all of it helps inform what's going on going up to the present and what can potentially happen in the future. And you can't prepare for things you don't know about. Mm. So we need to have constraints on both what has happened in the past to help us understand the history, but also helps us better perfect our weather models and our climate models so that we can build a better understanding of the future. And this is something that is foundational to our ability to plan for the future world. Uh, as we, even though we are changing away from what it was in the past, the information we get from the past will help us uh, understand the future. And yeah, and for me, I think it's um, to add to what Robert said. I think it's about understanding risk from from the changing climate. Um, and how we might adapt to the changing climate as well. So you know, by understanding the range of possibilities that the weather can throw at us, we, we, can, be, we can better plan to be resilient um, uh, to changes in the future. And you know, it's not all, also just all about temperature. You know, temperature is a, is a key thing that we measure and monitor, but often it's, it's, it's changes in rainfall or winds or windstorms or sea level or other, the, many other aspects of the climate that we care about. And so reconstructing the totality of our climate past is critical to understand the rates of change that we've already experienced uh, and therefore what the rates of change might be going forward. Um, uh, so, yeah, having that bigger picture and more complete picture of the past, for example, in the UK, we, we want to understand you know, how fast are our winters getting wetter. And so by pushing back our records another 30, 50 years, which we've been able to do, um, allows us to get a much clearer picture of how how more, how quickly our winters and our summers uh, are changing in terms of rainfall. Um, and so we can also then start to think about, well, if we had these extreme events in the past, how would they look in today's climate? What would a heat wave that happened in 1911, what would that look like if the same weather patterns happened today? Um, or the extreme flooding in October 1903, if those same weather patterns uh, happen today, there would be more rain, but how much more rain and how much more flooding would there be? So the, the more details we can have about these extreme events enables us to plan for adapting to the inevitable changes that are going to continue uh, until we get to net zero uh, emissions. So what's your next world changing graphic? Well, I don't think you can sit down one day and think, right, I'm going to, I'm going to develop a, an amazing new graphic today. I, I think it's something which is more um, uh, evolves through time and your idea idea may come suddenly or it may be um, you may be asked to do something unusual and therefore try and think about your communication in a different way um, and I think that's that's been critical um, and you know often it's it's um, conversations with people so you know the climate spiral which was the first one that, that went viral that I did um, that was um, uh, that the inspiration for, for that came from a colleague who emailed me on a Friday afternoon saying, I've had a crazy idea. How about you turn one of your graphics that you've already made into this spiral form? Um, uh, and, that's, and that's where the inspiration came. And, and we had a conversation about how to design it um, uh, from that. And, and similar with the stripes, you know, I was talking to, to Nicola um, who, who was partnering on the event with me and we were, you know, just chatting about different ways of communication. And, um, 
those conversations that we have with different people um, uh, that we may not have met before just gives you new inspiration um, to think about things in a different way. More information on the topics discussed in this episode can be found linked in the show notes below. Please be sure to like and subscribe to Data Points wherever you get your podcasts. Berkeley Earth is a 501c3 nonprofit organization producing leading climate and environmental data and analysis. You can contribute to independent climate science by visiting donate.berkeleyearth.org today.